When I think of healthcare, it brings to mind events like going to the doctor's office, visiting an emergency department, or perhaps staying overnight at a hospital. What I don't necessarily think about is how each of those require mobility and transportation. I mean, I have to get to the hospital or clinic, I have to find parking in some massive parking garage, and large healthcare institutions can be really confusing to navigate. And then there's exposure to some weird foreign environment, beeping monitors and paper-covered cold exam tables, and at times, a fair amount of just waiting. For older adults living with dementia, accessing routine medical care can end up being quite burdensome and disruptive to their normal daily routine. So much so that there's even concern that older adults living with dementia may avoid going to the doctor altogether, thus miss important routine and preventive care. In earlier eras of medicine, it was more common for doctors to visit patients in their homes. Given the difficulties I just described about making it in for a doctor's visit, along with older adults' desire to age in place and remain independent at home for as long as possible, there is growing interest in healthcare delivery moving back towards treating patients at home. In fact, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services expect expenditures on home care services to reach over $200 billion by 2028. No doubt, in addition to older adults preferring healthcare come to them, it's also gotten medical entrepreneurs very excited. In this episode, we'll speak with a researcher who was among the first to examine use of home-based clinical services among older adults living with dementia. We'll talk about what home-based care is and what she discovered. I'm Matt Davis. I'm Donovan Most. You're listening to Minding Memory. Today we're joined by Dr. Katherine Ornstein. Dr. Ornstein is a professor at Johns Hopkins University, appointed in the School of Nursing, the Department for Health Policy and Management at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, and in the Division for Geriatric Medicine and Gerontology. She also directs the Center for Equity and Aging. Her research focuses on issues regarding family caregiving and social determinants of being homebound among older adults. She's used a wide variety of different types of data in her work and is an epidemiologist by training. Dr. Ornstein is here today to tell us about one of her recent studies that examined the use of home care among a large cohort of older adults living with dementia. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here today. Dr. Ornstein was the lead author on a study titled Medicare-Funded Home-Based Clinical Care for Community-Dwelling Persons with Dementia, an Essential Healthcare Delivery Mechanism that was published in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society what many people refer to as JAGS for short. The study used data from the National Health and Aging Trends Study linked to Medicare claims. We'll make sure to include a link to her study attached to this episode. So to start things off, Catherine, in your paper, you use home-based clinical care as sort of like an umbrella term that captures several types of services. Could you walk us through what those services are? Sure. And, and that's actually a really important point of clarification. And my co-authors and I spent a lot of time carefully choosing that language because really our goal was to capture clinical services happening in the home. So not things like family caregiving, which is also happening in the home, but really billable medical care. 
So we looked at four different categories ultimately, again, with this umbrella term of home-based clinical care. So skilled home health care is probably the most recognized, right? And the most pervasive kind of home-based um, clinical services, which is basically um, care provided on an episodic basis by home health agencies to people who are homebound, who have a need for skilled services, i.e. nursing care, physical therapy, OT in the home. So that's generally, it requires a physician referral and it's initiated in a post-acute setting or in the community. Next, we looked at home-based medical care. And that we thought of as physician, physician assistant, or nurse practitioner-led care, either primary or specialty care that's provided also to adults who are homebound in their homes. And with, we also looked at what we ended up categorizing as two other types of services within this umbrella of home-based clinical care, which are podiatry visits, which are home-based visits for you know, diabetic foot care, things like that have, occurring at home, and a variety of other home-based clinical services, including imaging, um, behavioral health services, actually PT services even, um, that are covered essentially via Medicare Part B. And by defining home-based services, another important point is we looked at the home as not just private residential homes like where we live, but also non-nursing facility residential settings. So places like an assisted living, or a group home, those we also considered homes, but not nursing home care. Can I ask, how did podiatry get its own category? And like, did you know ahead of time it was going to be its own thing? Or was that after like looking at it that you saw that there were a lot of podiatry visits? That is a great question. Um, and I was like hoping you'd ask about podiatry. Um, because this was sort of a surprise, essentially. I mean, I, I'm not a clinician, but I work very closely with providers who do home-based care. And so we're very aware of, you know, podiatry services that occur at, in the home. Um, but we really didn't recognize how prevalent it was until we started looking at place of service and who was billing for what. And in doing that, when we realized that we were for the first time trying to just think about, you know, essentially a taxonomy of home-based clinical care, podiatry seemed to stand on its own and it was different. You know, we, we really thought it was different. I think um, my colleagues, you know, who are physicians, you know, I think they were like, this is different, you know, and, and there was enough of it that we sort of put it in its own category. Um, I think, you know, it's something, you know, I'd, I'd love to learn more about. And I think it's actually really important that it stood out like that because, I know at least, you know, as a um, uh, epidemiologist who studies aging, working very closely with geriatricians, we know very little about podiatry, you know, relative to dementia care and how important it, it may be. So it really is, I think, an interesting area of further study. You know, when you're among the first to go about studying something that people haven't looked at perhaps as deeply as other things, were you, I mean, something you said kind of led me to believe that maybe you were trying to figure out how to categorize these different services. Is that true? Or is there kind of like defined service categories already? Or were you really kind of figuring this out as you went? You know, I think it's like everything really in academic medicine, there's really sort of silos, 
essentially. And so, you know, there's researchers that look at skilled home health and, you know, they can go into um, Medicare claims data and look at home health. Um, colleagues, um, you know, myself and others, we've, we've studied home-based medical care, right? Because that is a growing area of physician, um, nurse practitioner services. And so there have been codes where we've looked at this as well. But what we were trying to do was actually take a bigger look because these things are not occurring in isolation. Like we study them often in isolation, right? And we think about them or we're, you know, but from the patient's perspective, there's a lot of people in their home providing services. So I think our goal was to really go broader and to try to see, and, you know, in like literally when you're looking at um, billing services for home-based medical care, there's a place of service code, right? So it, you can actually see it. And so, you know, you can actually say, well, what else is being billed for in the home? And in fact, we were, we learned a lot and, you know, we weren't, we're not new to the field. Um, my co-authors have worked in this. We, you know, again, clinicians doing this, we learned a lot because this is a national sample. So practices are different in different places. So it really, um, you know, we hope in doing this, and we have another work um, that um, uh, my co-author Claire Ancuda is leading, where we're actually trying to see, can we actually define this so that other researchers start to look at home-based services more broadly? Make, makes sense to take that empirical look initially, you know? So I'm, if I recall correctly, all of the data that you all use, this was pre-pandemic. In the pandemic era, though, there's been a lot of interest in, you know, telehealth services. Is that in any way in the home care umbrella at all? Or, you know, are any of the visits that you were looking at, were any of those telehealth visits? No, it's a, it's a great question. And these data, as you correctly point out, are, co are collected prior to 2020. So we do not simultaneously assess telemedicine as a type of care provided to individuals in the home, um, which obviously expanded during COVID-19. And it's likely an important aspect of care for this population, as well as non-homebound, right? It's changed for all of us. Um, but I think this is something we'll need to look at moving forward. But these data do not include that, in part because we don't even know what's going to happen with that. Um, or the pan the evolving pandemic. Um, and uh, also I'd point out that there are other services that we do not include here um, that are at home, such as um, hospital at home services, which is sort of acute care, uh, medical care provided in the home. And again, that has also changed with COVID. Um, you know, there's a waiver that allows us to provide more of those kinds of services covered through Medicare. So there are definitely things that we want to keep looking at. And I think this, I hope, will be evolving to serve, um, you know, the population in need. So just coming back to your study. So on our podcast, we've had the opportunity to talk with a couple different people that have, you know, used the health and retirement study. But I think you might be the first uh, coming on that has used this National Health and Aging Trends Study, or what people call NHATS. Can you tell us a little about that data set? Sure. Um, so NHATS is a nationally representative annual longitudinal study of Medicare beneficiaries uh, age 65 and older. And it began in 2011. So that's much later than HRS started, essentially. Um, and it's in-person annual interviews. 
So they're conducted with study participants or with proxy respondents. Uh, which is really important in this study as well. Um, um, and participants are asked detailed questions about daily activities, um, medical comorbidities, socioeconomic status, and the home environment. And like HRS, we can link NHATS to other data. In this case, we linked it to Medicare claims. As somebody who's worked with both HRS and NHATS, can you speak just a little bit to what you perceive as kind of relative advantages or disadvantages when you compare the two? It's like asking me uh, which one of my children is my favorite. favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, NHATS has a distinct advantage um, over HRS in that it's annual. So HRS is conducted every two years. NHATS is, is every year. So the reason that's really important for the population I'm interested in is a lot changes every year when you're dealing with an older patient with dementia and their functional ability and who's supporting them. So two years can feel like too long for many things. Um, Also, NHATS has a linked caregiver study, the National Study of Caregivers, um, also called NSOC. Um, where caregivers are interviewed. HRS does not have this. And again, if you study older adults with dementia, um, you want to know what's going on with their caregivers. And what's really cool, too, is they don't just interview one caregiver. They interview up to five caregivers for an individual. So it's a huge advantage in that way. Um, And also for my research in particular, um, NHATS, Really, conceptually, there's there's more of a focus on disability in NHATS, and they ask specifically about um, how often individuals leave the home and who assists them. And I've used this to help identify who is homebound, which obviously matters for home-based care delivery. HRS doesn't have that measure, so you know that's that's generally why I prefer it in studying home-based care. Um, but on the other side. Um, HRS, it's been around a long time. So if you want to see things that are changing, if you want to follow people, um, you can see it. And it also starts with younger individuals. I mean, I don't probably don't, you've had other um, guests talking about HRS here and you're at Michigan. So, you know, I don't have to tell you guys, but you know, it starts with younger adult, you know, over 50. So that's an advantage. Um, also, HRS, you know, was designed by economists, right? So there's better data on finances and wealth that, you know, really just is not as good in NHATS. Um, but there's a lot we could have done here that we also could do in HRS. And actually, we, we are doing some similar work in home-based care delivery using HRS as well. Um, I would also just say, just for people interested in working with new data sets, one thing I like about NHATS is in some ways it feels cleaner because it's newer. They like learn from HRS. So they kind of like fresh start. So a lot of the those of us who have been in there and looked at the code books, there's something cleaner in that way, just because it starts, you know, it, it had 20 years of, you know, it doesn't have to include. So it's always easier in that way. Those are some really important differences. And you mentioned like sort of the difference in terms of the time gaps and all that. But I'm curious, like if you talk a little bit more about how specifically dementia is identified in NHATS and I guess just the the mechanism by which that's done, you know, the, compared to HRS as well. 
Yeah, and that's really important. And, you know, they, both studies are so, so, you know, really important for studying older adults by having, you know, algorithms to really try to look at dementia in the population. And, you know, I do a lot of work with claims data, and it's really different if you're just looking at Medicare claims to see if somebody has a dementia code, right? That's really different. It's problematic in different ways. So NHATS um, has an algorithm that they use and they basically um, will class, you can use it to classify individuals as not having dementia, having possible dementia or probable. They have um, info is taken from different sources, simply reporting that a doctor has told you that you had that you have dementia or Alzheimer's disease. Um, they use the ADA dementia screening interview, um, which is administered to the proxy respondents. Um, and so it's an eight item instrument. Um, and then they actually do cognitive tests, evaluating, you know, memory for the individual directly. So orientation and executive function. And again, what's really nice, and they, and again, they, they use this three group classification. What's really nice is, NHATS was not created in a vacuum. They learned a lot from HRS. Um, so that really, they bring that to the table, I think, um, so that we can, again, it's not perfect in any way. Um, you know, I've, but, but I think we feel, we feel reasonably good and, and certainly better than, you know, simply using a claims-based approach to dementia identification. So then uh, when you think about the outcomes that you were looking at in the Medicare claims data, so home-based clinical care, um, where, which files did you look at? How did you go about identifying the care and the types of care? So um, home, skilled home health care, Medicare has this very nice home health file. Um, so we kind of went in there and, you know, it, 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 I've, I've really only the last year or two started looking at these data. I know other researchers, you know, have spent a lot of time there. Um, but we really looked at any home health care, but, uh, you know, the, you, you know, we, um, you can recertify home health care. You can sort of have different episodes. You can sort of see what's being provided. There's a lot of details there that we did not get into for this paper, um, but, but we are actually looking at it in more detail. And then to identify home-based medical care, um, we really looked at specific, um, uh, the HICPICs or healthcare common procedure codes um, uh, to identify the provision. And this is, you know, what actually people use for billing. Like we went in there, found them. Um, and then any carrier file claim that occurred in the home, we pulled out. So literally place of service, we examined where things were happening. Um, and then we looked at the provider type to see if it was a podiatrist. So we sort of created an actual approach to identifying home-based care delivery. Um, uh, using the claims. And if you could give us kind of like the, you know, abstract worthy, uh, kind of high level overview of the findings, what, what did you find? What stood out to you? So, you know, basically almost half of individuals with dementia are receiving some kind of Medicare funded home-based clinical care each, per year, not lifetime, but in a year they are getting it. So almost half. That also means that almost half are not. Um, across all services we examined, 
So the skilled home health care, home-based medical care, podiatry, it was much more common among patients with dementia. They are getting this home-based care. And it's interesting. I mean, home-based medical care is pretty rare still. It really is not available everywhere. Yet, among patients with dementia, 14% are getting home-based medical care. That's not nothing. You know, that's pretty serious. Um, podiatry is also not uncommon among patients with dementia. Um, and again, skilled home health care, we see much more common among patients with dementia. Um, and then we also saw services varied based on where people lived, based on who they were. Um, so not everyone with dementia gets this care, but a lot of people are getting it. So how common is the use of home-based care among people without dementia, just as a baseline? So if we said like home-based medical care, for example, it's like less than 2%. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's pretty rare because we don't have that much of it, essentially. And you also looked at um, service use by subgroup, right? And uh, what did you find with those analyses? Well, when we looked at sort of who was getting home-based care, I think some of the things that were really highlighted, I'd say there's two, two factors that really came out. One is we really saw an underuse among um, uh, patients who were Hispanic or Latino. We really are not seeing home-based medical care in this population, um, which is actually particularly problematic because this is the fastest growing subgroup of homebound patients that we're seeing. So now there's, we don't know why, um, you know, why there may be limited use, but we can imagine, um, you know, if there's a need for interpreters in these settings, um, care referral patterns, and simply like the caregiving environment, um, as well as just preferences, right? Of an access. We also, and we also saw differences in basically more care in metropolitan areas. Again, that makes sense because we know the types of um, uh, areas where home-based primary care practices in particular thrive, right? Within setting, you know, more urban settings. Um, but we also are seeing more for individuals who are living in uh, assisted living or other kinds of residential care facilities. So we really saw differences there. When you think about the providers of these services, um, to what extent are these people who maybe it was like the the individual's office-based clinician who's coming to see them at home? Like, do you have a sense if that's happening or are these completely different providers? Yeah, that's a really good question. I would say we really have to do more research on that. But we, we had originally, in other work we've done, we've limited it to, you know, multiple visits per provider just to kind of make sure we're not getting that one-off visit where a provider stops in on one of their patients but doesn't really do home visits. Um, but I, we, really, we really need to do more research on that. But I think the reality is people have to know how to build for this and how to do this. 
and how to get the other services in place when they're providing care this way. So really what's growing are practices that are using, primarily it's actually nurse practitioners who are leading this in terms of the home-based medical care. It's not physician-led model. To what extent do you think that supply is really the main limiting factor here? I think that's a really important part of this. You know, in this analysis, we use fairly crude markers of metropolitan indicator and just like region, but just a key driver is availability of services. And, you know, we know, um, you know, skilled home health care, by the way, is more ubiquitous. Right. So people have access to that and we see that the, the differences in are in the other types of services that we looked at. Um, and simply reimbursement for care doesn't allow it to thrive in areas where you're, you know, don't have the patient population. And I think this is why we're seeing far higher rates among those living in residential facilities. Right. Um, you want you know, more favorable geographic factors, essentially, because um, to improve f- financial sustainability, right? So we can't, you know, we're not set up to be able to see people unless it's efficient. Um, and this is consistent. There's other work done really suggesting that in rural areas, there's just limited access to home-based medical care. Again, skilled home health care, we are seeing being more available. But again, that is something that's been there for a while. That's sort of been set up within Medicare, you know, that exists, again, originally really in a post-acute care model. Can I just ask one question related to podiatry one last time? I promise it's the last. Uh, so this might be, this is probably more clinical, but I guess based on, I'm assuming that you worked with clinicians and, and, and Donovan as well, you should chime in. Like, is it at all surprising that people living with dementia need a lot of, you know, Podiatric care is that surprising at all to anybody, or not really? And so, I think it's not surprising if you talk to clinicians that are seeing patients with dementia who can't get out, who can't like it. Yeah. It it was great to see that podiatrists are doing this, but I think it might speak more to a, a financially sustainable model in terms of their reimbursements and how they're doing this. It seems like getting getting a, a podiatry care at home is something that can be done. It it looks like you know it wasn't doesn't doesn't look like an unreasonable thing, um, but I I would love to study this more. This was one of the most interesting things, and I think you know we know that you know podiatry interventions can help with falls. Um, you know, there's a lot there that's important. And, you know, is this something that's sort of underutilized? And, you know, when you think of even social isolation, podiatrists are going in, they are trained professionals, they're, you know, they're there keeping eyes on patients. And I don't think the geriatric community is that aware of it. I I think I think of diabetes. That's why I was just surprised with dementia. But yeah. When you think, not to continue picking on podiatrists, but so podiatrists, but also other types of um, medical services, um, is the reimbursement for the service in office setting versus home setting different? Do you know, like the amount that they get reimbursed? For the I, same you know, thing? I haven't looked at it for podiatry. 
Um, I know sort of when we look at the differences for just home-based medical care visits, it's not much different. You know, it's not very different. It certainly does not cover the travel time to make it worthwhile by any, you know, financial model like that I can possibly um, think of. Um, but I'm not sure because, you know, what we did see, for example, and again, this is why it needs to be studied, uh, because we went in there and we saw that, for example, physical therapy was being built. Um, and that's not part of skilled home health care physical therapy. So we think of physical therapy as being part, and it is. But there's also other kinds of physical therapy that's separate, that is built in the home. So potentially, it would be interesting to see what the payment structure looks like there and what are the incentives. Um, and again, this is Medicare fee-for-service, right? So we're not even thinking of different kinds of payment models that have different incentives potentially, right? So we don't know. And, you know, behavioral health, we saw billing, you know, for. I think we can certainly imagine from the context of dementia how that could be so useful. But it's not happening much. But how is it happening? Is it worthwhile? Um, I, I could only imagine it certainly could be for the patients and the caregivers to to provide such services in the home. This question is probably too much in the weeds, but you mentioned fee for service. I mean, that's how you identify healthcare use in you know claims. How did you? I, I, it must be complicated, right? When you're using NHATS and coming fro from that forward in time, you, did you have variable follow up based on people being enrolled in fee for service that were kind of in for very different time, amounts of time in the study, the follow up time period, I guess. Right. So we we limited it to individuals that we could follow for at least one month in fee-for-service so that we could see. So in some ways, we are conservative, potentially under-reporting mm -hmm. the use of um, any kind of home-based clinical care. Um, but generally, we don't see too much interruption back and forth per month in that way. Like we don't see too much of a mix that way, but we wanted at least one month because we also did not want to lose people who died because that's interesting too. And, and I'd also point out there, we did not include home hospice here, which is obviously is home-based clinical service. We didn't include it because it's kind of different relative to sort of who would be um, eligible for hospice care. So that's something we're also looking at um, in this population. But I just want to sort of point out that's obviously another home-based service. So you demonstrate just how often these services are used among this population. But just kind of thinking forward, I mean, that's, that's, that's where we start, right? Are people starting to think about outcomes, you know, and cost implications of people who get these services at home versus those that perhaps don't? Yeah, and that's, um, you know, there's been a lot of observational studies um, for, for decades um, that have provided some, um, I would say, pretty strong findings um, about improved outcomes and certainly reduced cost. Um, and the Independence at Home Demonstration Project um, is also finds positive outcomes related to cost. Um, in terms of art, RCTs have been conducted, the VA has a very impressive home-based primary care pr 
program. Um, there's older studies there, but also very positive. Uh, there was an RCT conducted um, in the past five years on home-based medical care, not yet published, um, unfortunately underpowered, but still showing some evidence for some increased satisfaction and so on. But this is really ongoing work of really trying to see. Um, and again, it's, it's hard because we don't have enough of it. Um, and it's also hard because the population served are very sick and there's a lot of mortality. Um, there's, you know, so there, it's sort of a, a challenging group to really look at, at outcomes. And I think COVID has reminded us that sort of the home environment is pretty important. I think there's a, you know, even more of a, of a concern for where our, you know, long-term care system, you know, is. And I think the COVID experience is really pushing us more into home, um, into the home environment and really re recognizing that we need to do more. And, it, and it's not going to just be telehealth. Um, telehealth, there, there's a lot of literature now in, in home-based care really suggesting that while telehealth has been very, um, you know, really important, it can't do everything and certainly not for every patient. Um, so I think we really need to, to invest more in home-based care and, and step one, is to understand what's happening and really recognizing what's happening in the home. So that's that's what we're trying to do. So stay tuned for, for more. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. If you enjoyed our discussion today, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Other episodes can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud, as well as directly from us, at capra.med.umich.edu, where a full transcript of this episode is also available. On our website, you'll also find links to our seminar series and the data products we've created for dementia research. Music and engineering for this podcast was provided by Dan Langa. More information available at www.danlanga.com. Minding Memory is part of the Michigan Medicine Podcast Network. Find more shows at uofmhealth.org slash podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from the National Institute on Aging at the National Institutes of Health, as well as the Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation at the University of Michigan. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the NIH or the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back soon.